S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 1, starring Lily Tomlin, originally aired on September 18th, 1976. My name's Keith. Welcome to the show. With me, as always, is Matt. Welcome to Season 2, Matt. Thank you. Thanks to all the uh, texts, emails, calls I've received wondering, when is it coming? It's here. I'm really excited. And joining us, there's no better way to start off the second year than our good buddy Heather is back. Heather was at the Diane Cannon episode, I believe. How you doing, Heather? I'm doing great. Nice to be back. Nice to have you back. So yeah, season two, salaries have gone up, budgets have gone up. Not for us, for the, <laughs> for the Saturday Night Live people. And surely all this money and attention floating around the mid-70s New York studio that is manned by artists in their 20s is a no-fail situation. <laughs> <laughs> so it's season two. Uh, and just, you know, if you think back to the George Carlin episode, um, episode one, of course, uh, which was essentially a variety show with some comic actors popping in to do some bits and pieces to enhance the program. Here we are like 11 months later, and the show is the talk of the TV world, and people are just chomping at the bit to be involved. It's getting press everywhere. Big change uh, in one year, eh, Matt? Huge. Uh, the show developed so much over the 20-odd episodes. Uh, the first season really found its identity there toward the end, I thought. Absolutely. As far as major crew or anything like that, there hasn't been any significant change at this point between one and two. Bruce McCall joining the writing staff. Uh, I think he came from the uh, Harvard or National Lampoon. He'll do six episodes and then he'll he'll leave for forever, I believe. He must have loved it. <laughs> but as of right now, it's uh, all things are the same as they were at the end of the season. So I personally think that's a good thing, but we'll see. What do you What are you guys thinking about no major changes over that summer hiatus? When you have a hit like this on your hands, it can't be a surprise. I agree with Matt. And I think a lot of shows or a lot of things in general make a big mistake where they, they overly inflate, you know, during their break. Well, I find nowadays with Saturday Night Live, like every year they introduce new cast. And personally, I find there's always like the growing pains in the first season or so of a new cast. Like it kind of... Like it kind of takes a bit of a dip. I guess, you know, the consistency is nice. Yeah, they've got a, I mean, they've got their, their, their role. They know the roles, the family's in place. Everybody's slotted in where they need to be. Yeah. Um, but that's not going to last. And and as the season goes on, we'll, we'll see one huge departure and one uh, significant addition. Oh, and, I hate uh, it when shows add a baby. That's the worst. <laughs> Yeah, tonight we have Lily Tomlin. How about that? Uh, this is Lily's big return. Since we've last seen Lily Tomlin, she's actually, she was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress in Robert Altman's Nashville, but she lost to Lee Grant in Shampoo. I overlooked Nashville in, in my last intro of Lily, but, you know, she was in Nashville. There we go. All done. <laughs> and her, her, uh, her album, Modern Scream got her a Grammy nomination, which I don't think she won either, but to get a, you know, an Oscar. And I think that was her first major role in a film. So yeah, let's, let's get to our cold open. So it's uh, Chevy and Gilda. They're outside the studio and they're waiting for Lily Tomlin. Chevy's annoyed that Lily hasn't shown up all week for rehearsals. Gilda insists that she'll be there. 
And Lily arrives in a limousine with a huge entourage, which includes a little person actor, Felix Silla, who most people know as Cousin It. And he actually just passed away this year. So the entourage walks in past the security desk. Lily's giving everyone the big star treatment. She introduces Chevy and Gilda as Jerry and Goldie. Uh, they meet Garrett at the door. She's very patronizing and says, uh, "You aren't you so kind? Aren't you so good? She then calls jo- uh, Jane Curtin Joan, and she's corrected and calls her uh, Joan Belushi. Lily then goes to her dressing room. Chevy waits for her in the hall, and he starts chatting with the little person limo driver. Chevy says that he does falls. The driver asks Chevy to, Chevy to do one. Chevy won't, so he trips him. We get the live from New York, and then Chevy chases the driver off. Um, this was okay. I did. A couple of things I liked about it. For the most part, I agree with you guys. It wasn't wowing. First of all, I was really excited to just come into the episode again. So when they started outside under the lights, I thought that was kind of cool. I liked the 70s, really 70s looking crowd uh, in the background, seeing the styles and the glasses and the mustaches. That was cool. Lily Tomlin was awesome as the entitled star, which it kind of reminded me that uh, on her last episode, I know I know I mentioned that uh, I got this vibe from her that she was just too good for this place. And uh, I don't know, maybe maybe she heard what I said. So she comes into this uh, making fun of herself a little bit to show me up. Felix, rest in peace. I, th- I thought he was hilarious when he was filling her glass as soon as she comes out of the car. Those, those are my favorite parts of it. I was a little disappointed that we started with a fall, you know, contrary to what I just said, even that, uh, you know, it makes perfect sense that there's no substantial changes, certainly cast wise or maybe production wise. I don't know. It's the season premiere of season two, your hit show. I was hoping for something a little different. This is going to be a theme throughout the whole episode for me. It, it was good, but it, it wasn't something that I thought you'd necessarily come up with after you've been off for a little while, you know. There's been no changes to the intro. And then we go to the monologue. So Lily comes out. I'm not sure if they expanded the audience again or if it was uh, just a, a different camera angle or something, but it looked like a huge audience. Lily is performing this under the guise that the audience didn't see her pretentious actress entrance during the cold opening. So she says she's had a great time with the whole cast. They've been so busy she couldn't even change her clothes. She took the subway to work. She says thanks and sends it to commercial. And when stage manager Joe Disco gives her the clear... She uh, gets a drink from the driver and says, uh, I I guess they bought that. Quick monologue. I'm not sure how I feel about the monologue tying into the cold open. Again, I wasn't wowed. Yeah, I was pretty underwhelmed as well. And again, I just, you know, maybe it's because, I mean, I'm a big Lily Tomlin fan and I find her more recent characters and just her as a person seems to be this very sort of like, granola type down to earth kind of person so I just don't really like I wasn't buying it you know what I mean I was sort of it's such a juxtaposition to how Mm. I picture her being that I was just kind of like a little lame a little obvious you know I was just yeah I'm uh, pretty much completely unfamiliar with uh, Lily Tomlin in the 21st century. Most of my exposure to Lily Tomlin, uh, I believe, is from the 80s, seeing her on various comedy things doing characters. So I have no idea what she's like now. So I I think she's pulling this off uh, remarkably. Having said that, a couple of things. I didn't like that they didn't change the the opening at all. They didn't even take new pictures of the the, uh, not ready for primetime players. I thought that was lazy. And the monologue was just way too short. Uh, I I like it to have a little more meat. It was 
funny enough, I think Lily Tomlin's been, you know, she's two for two for me with the cold open and the monologue. As far as her performance goes, goodness, give her something to do. That's not it. And I think that was the the way people perceived Lily at the time is very similar to how it is today. She's got a bit more of the, you know, elder statesman thing. Even the audience would, would, would be in on the joke that Lily's being pretentious. And it's purely, I think, a reference to her having been nominated for an Oscar. There was something missing. And for someone as talented as Tomlin to only have such a short monologue, I don't know. It might have been a time crunch thing. I'm not sure. Really, it was just one joke. Do you know what I mean? The whole thing was just one gag. So it was a little, yeah, yeah a little bit of a letdown. So uh, debate 76. This is huge. This is the first debate, presidential debate on Saturday night live. Um, and these really became the, the show's, the whole brand's bread and butter for a while. And we have uh, Lily Tomlin as Ruth Cluson and Jane, John and Garrett as the, the panel, the question panel. We have Chevy Chase as Ford and Dan Aykroyd as Jimmy Carter. Aykroyd is the accurate but cartoony version of Carter. Chevy is uh, his Chevy Chase, Gerald Ford, botching names, getting his hands stuck in paper, frigging up with water. This was good. This is the first one. This is a perfect sort of embryonic presidential debate sketch. It's a good starting point. But yeah, this was uh, this was a nice thing to see. I was I liked it, but I wanted to love it, I think is the best way to put it. Yeah, I think that says it well. I liked it. I wanted to love it, but I did enjoy it. Chevy did make me laugh. You know, it was all a little bit over the top and like you said, a little bit cartoonish, but it was it was still good. It still hit the right notes. Um, I found the abortion bit funny. The credits at the end were amusing, especially the one about Ford being helped to the stage. <laughs> um, Gerald Ford's wardrobe done by mistake. Yes, know. I saw that one too. I was trying to catch them all. I wasn't able to pause it and rewind like I would have liked because so I was trying to kind of catch them all yeah but, uh, yeah I caught that one that one made me, that one made me giggle I thought it was pretty funny too. I was excited when it started uh, because I know that this becomes uh, a staple of Saturday Night Live and I was really excited to see more of Dan Aykroyd's Jimmy Carter so I ended up pretty surprised that Chevy Chase's Gerald Ford uh, made me laugh more than Dan Aykroyd's Jimmy Carter. I've been pretty 50-50, I think, historically on Chevy's Gerald Ford. Sometimes I think it's really stupid. Sometimes I've really liked it. I certainly liked it this time. I, I think he just does such a good job with it. Maybe he really grew into it because I liked the last one he did uh, at the end of season one with Chris Christopherson as well. Panel are fine. Belushi picking his nose got a laugh of me. Garrett only being there because he's black, I thought was hilarious and not knowing who Ford was. So yeah, the, this was uh, this was a hit for me. I, I really liked it. Yeah. And, and the key line, of course, being um, it was my understanding that there would be no math. Uh, yes. Classic. Yeah, yeah, that one was good. So now we go to the music and Lily Tomlin introduces James Taylor. James Taylor, at this point, had released an album called In the Pocket in June of 76. The album peaked at number 16, um, despite being panned and, and barely promoted, actually. And it's sort of a James Taylor and Friends album featuring Stevie Wonder, Art Garfunkel. Any nicknames for Art Garfunkel, Matt? Big Dick Art. That's him. Uh, <laughs> Bonnie Raitt, Graham Nash, David Crosby, my least favorite half of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And... Uh, <laughs> And the please don't make me play live Carly Simon. So uh, that's quite a quite a list of collaborators for that album. 
So the song James Taylor sings is Shower the People, and it's uh, it was the top single from the album. I think it hit number 22. And they get really cute with the cameras doing this composite shot where it's both a close-up and a medium shot. This was very good in the sense that it's James Taylor being completely James Taylor. James Taylor is not my thing at all, which is odd because I, lot of, I like a lot of his quote-unquote adult contemporaries. But to me, Taylor is sort of my nexus of like musical ignorance. I... I don't see why he's like James Taylor. And there's probably several equally talented people who are playing at Legion halls and, 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 and shitty bars. But if you're a James Taylor fan, I guarantee this would be something you would love. I disagree. No, not entirely. Um, I am a James Taylor fan. I think partially just because I grew up with James Taylor. So there's that nostalgia factor. This has never been one of my favorite songs. And while I liked what they were doing with the cameras and stuff, I did find the whole performance a little dry in general. I just kind of was a little bit not super engaged. Mm -hmm. I'll take every opportunity to mention that Mockingbird is the worst song of the 1970s. I really (laughs) think it's just stupid as fuck. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I was, I found it boring. I found the, the lack of hole in his guitar really distracting. I was so bored I didn't even notice that. Oh, it was like I could that's all I could think about. It was like uh the uh, the rose on Gordon Lightfoot's pants. Couldn't take your eyes off it. Did you say that was his hit single from that album? From that album, yeah. Oh man, that is just it's never been my favorite song. No. I don't no. dig it. So um weekend update. Uh there is a phone gag and it's Chevy saying any dessert topping will do. And he starts to talk about condiments when he notices he's uh, uh, live on the air. This is a rehash, isn't it? Uh, I thought he said something about whipped cream or something in a, in, in a previous gag before. Um, yeah, I, I believe so as well about eating something off of, yeah. So Mao Zedong had recently died. And uh, what jumped out at me was not so much the joke, but how late it had been. I, I thought Mao Zedong died long before that. Francisco Franco still dead. There's a couple, at least one transgender joke in there. Idi Amin is to undergo a species transplant. Then we go to Lorraine at the Blaine Hotel. Tragedy is stricken. 30 people got sick from foreign legionnaire's disease, which is uh, basically you have a long period of silence followed by speaking a foreign language and before dropping dead. And the way Lorraine says dropping dead is hilarious. Uh, Belushi plays the manager of the Blaine and uh, he starts to speak gibberish all of a sudden and dies. And then Lorraine jumps into a foreign language on her pitch out and she also dies. Um, so the first half, any any thoughts on this stuff so far? As I said in the last episode that I did, Weekend Update has never been my favorite. And I'm not a huge fan of Chevy on SNL. I find it's a lot of like cheap gags. And I just, I don't know. I just don't love it. The Lorraine bit, although I did love her voice like you, I did find her hilarious in that regard. But the sketch in general bombed for me. I found it really cheesy. I just didn't find it funny. This this wasn't a big hit for me either. Uh, I thought the uh, the Blaine Hotel segment went on a little too long. Uh, as much as I I do like Lorraine's correspondent, Chevy's jokes though are really coming off flat, and it's sort of it keeps giving me the same feeling of you know it's I, I know you got a hit on your hands, but you, you just you can't keep just doing the same shit you know you gotta mix it up you gotta do new stuff like it's 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 supposed to be exciting television this isn't exciting television yeah i couldn't agree more flat is the right word for 
Chevy on weekend update. I just don't. Yeah, it just doesn't do it for me. And like you said, it's very like the same, like they need to shake it up a little. And they will. So we then go to a commercial and it's Lily Tomlin doing my favorite thing that she does. It's her uh, telephone operator character, Ernestine. And it's a parody of a, of a phone company commercial where she basically disconnects calls and uh, says, uh, we don't care because we don't have to. Just a note on this, about six years before she'd been offered really big money to do actual ads as Ernestine, but turn them down. But what did you think of the commercial? I really liked it. I liked it. This one made me laugh. I love seeing uh, Lily Tomlin pull out her different characters. So this was great. And of course, you know, who doesn't hate the phone company? So I liked it. It made me laugh. Agree. Uh, I really enjoyed it too. Uh, the the corporate dismissal of the average consumer concerns may be a little too close to home uh, in today's day and age. Uh, it, just watching it made me mad at Nova Scotia Power is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it was and a little that, timely, a little on the nose. <laughs> it's so funny to me because this actually, as we're dealing with phone companies more, and not just phone, you know, phone, internet, all this telecom companies, I suppose, and uh, people are getting less and less satisfied with their customer service. This This character has become um, more applicable today than it was when it debuted. She's a villain. So the second half, Don Pardo does typical guests of Saturday Night Live stay at the Blaine Hotel, but he also jumps into gibberish and dies. The Martin and Lewis reunion that happened on Jerry Lewis's MDA telethon was so touching that others will reunite, including Lucy and Desi, Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher, and Jimmy Hoffa. And then Emily calls in. She has an issue with uh, five crustaceans hijacking a plane, and she talks about who made their little masks and stuff like that. Not crustaceans, it's Croatians. In 2001, this bit was cut out shortly after 9-11. It did get restored later, but there was a period of time where this Emily bit was not in there. I actually laughed at this one, and I, I don't mind Emily appearing in these quicker little bits. Uh, so the second half for you guys, how'd it go? I liked the Emily bit as well. It made me laugh. It was simple humor, but it was it was funny. I liked it. My problem with it is it was Chevy that made me laugh. Uh, it wasn't her. She went on and she provided me with the same thing that I've been feeling all episode. Holy shit, this again. But Chevy's just dismissal of her completely as not even giving a shit that she understands what a Croatian is. Uh, that really got a good laugh out of me. Before we go, I would be remiss. If they're going to take something out of this whole weekend update segment, they, they should really take out the joke about the tennis player that is transsexual. Uh, that was a really tasteless joke. Mean-spirited, I think. And with Emily there, Matt, um, do you prefer them in these quicker bits? Because this is about like a half as long or a third as long even as some of her other ones where she rolls out at the desk. Yeah, it was definitely nicer that it was quicker. I still don't need to see it. It's like, hey, do you want me to punch you for two minutes or five? Well, yeah, punch me for two, but, you know, ideally don't. And speaking of getting punched for five minutes, we now go to the land of Gorch. Scred wakes up finding himself in a filing cabinet and thinks it's a morgue. Uh, Queen Puta is next to him. Plubis is in the one below and even Wiss is there. Um, the reactions they got, I mean, Scred has been the sort of star of these, but it, it makes me wonder why they didn't try a little bit more with Wiss. Uh, anyway, they find the mighty Favog statue under a sheet. The audience seems to really love Favog. And uh, they get talking and they, they think they've been removed from the show. They're pretty sure they, uh, they, they've been caught forever. And uh, Favog says, well, they should just do whatever they're asked to do or whatever they're told to do. Lily Tomlin comes in and she talks about singing a song and asks if they can whistle. At first, the Muppets are hesitant to say they can, but Favog says, of course, they can whistle. Um, and they start to sing, uh, what's the song? Whistle a happy tune, I think. 
And as the Muppets try to whistle, they make all these really weird noises. And uh, Lily just can't really take it anymore. So she takes off. This one, yeah, this one fell a little short for me. The, is it Favog? What was yes. Yeah. yeah. Him whistling and sucking his own face in was the only part where I kind of smiled. Other than that, I was kind of just wondering what the hell was going on. No love here. Uh, I don't think this belonged on the episode. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if they're contractually obliged to Jim Henson to keep rolling these out, uh, but they got to know that this isn't what makes the show the hit. I mean, they're practically joking already about them being off the show for, for you know, whatever reason they got them coming out of retirement uh, as it is even toward the end of the first season there there were subtle jabs that oh yeah can we get how do we get on the show blah 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 the sketch to me reeks of contractual obligation i think it absolutely was so that's it matt that's the end of the muppets um we do yeah, not, really we do not see any trace of muppets again for uh well over a decade maybe two Again on Saturday Night Live. So 13 days before this episode aired on September 5th, The Muppet Show debuted. Henson and crew leaving Saturday Night Live to do The Muppet Show is a great deal for all in retrospect and uh, probably was for everybody at the time then too. Um, So then we have uh, Lily. She walks over to James Taylor, who introduces saxophone player David Sanborn. And they perform Road Runner, originally done by Junior Walker and the All-Stars. This is a fun song, and it features the most awkward claps I've ever seen from a popular musician. This was a quick tune. Taylor did it okay. Again, I'm not a James Taylor fan, but I much preferred this one to Shower the People. This is this stuff is not for me. You know, seeing David Sanborn hitting that horn was pretty fun. He had some interesting clapping going on himself. Oh for 2. I'm glad you mentioned the clapping because that was the first thing I wrote down. It was hysterical. But unfortunately, I found that it ruined the sax solos. The song didn't really do it for me. All I could do was keep picturing the Roadrunner. And (laughs) dancing also was killing me. Like James's dancing was just, I don't know. I just kind of found this performance awkward in general. I felt like, I felt kind of bad for the saxophone player. I don't know why. I just felt like here he was doing a great job and... James was kind of ruining it for him. Yeah, so oh my God, it was so funny. Like, isn't keeping the beat the first thing a musician needs to do? Oh my and God. I don't think I've ever really noticed James Taylor dance before during a performance because, I mean, he's usually like either sitting or playing like slower, more, you know, folky tunes, mm-hmm. but the dancing was atrocious. <laughs> There's a reason for that, I think. I think he, yeah. uh, somebody played this back and said, never clap, never dance again. I think he needs an instrument. I think the fact that he didn't have a guitar or anything to play, well, he had the tambourine at the end, and that was equally as bad as the clapping. But yeah, yeah it, was, it was almost like he just needed something to do, and it was like, just let the saxophonist have his bit and just relax. Maybe he's one of those actors, Heather, that like like one of those actors that need something in their hands, like a pen or a coffee cup or... Yeah, well, I, yeah, I mean, give the man coffee. something like... Yeah, they can't act if they're focused on their dangly arms, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We go from the biggest laugh of the show to uh, what the fuck was this? It's uh, called Tess and the Salesman, and it's Tess Desenzio, played by Lily Tomlin. She's in an apartment bedecked with Christmas decorations, and she's watching a Three Stooges short. And basically, this is a character that's very lonely, and she calls and gets salesmen to come visit her, so she has someone to talk to. Uh, this was very awkward. Um, and with very few changes, this could be like one of, um, one of these morality episodes from like the 80s sitcoms or even a terrifying episode of The Twilight Zone. 
Um, and either would be more apt than what this was. Um, this is a comic genius named Lily Tomlin on the hottest show on TV called SNL. And it wasn't even funny. This was hideous. You couldn't have said it better. It was it was depressing. It was downright. I was spent the whole sketch just waiting for a joke, a punchline or something to redeem it. And then the very last thing they say is, it's September. You guys just sold it to the end. It was terrible. I mean, I love Lily Tomlin and her character was great, but it didn't belong on SNL. I don't know where this belonged, but not on SNL. So weird. I, I don't. I definitely didn't straight up hate it uh, as much as uh, you guys by the sound of it, uh, because I don't know, I found myself enjoying watching it because she was so good and Garrett was playing his role perfectly and nervously. And But yeah, it was sad. There, there's no two ways around it. it. It left me feeling sad. It certainly didn't make me laugh. I, I don't get why it was on the show. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but uh, but I enjoyed its its weirdness. Yeah, it was just so out of place. I have nothing to back this up, but I think Lily Tomlin wrote this. I think this was a new character she was trying out, and uh, it didn't work. Well, that would make me even more depressed if I knew Lily wrote it. So next up, James Taylor comes back and he sings Sweet Baby James. This song was released on his 1970 album called Sweet Baby James. One of his more popular pieces. Um, it's a it's a pretty song, and it was written for his nephew, also known as James. Yeah, this was probably the most enjoyable James Taylor bit. Enjoyable for the right reasons, uh, James Taylor bit of the night. Just a nice, quick, cute little lullaby of a song. Yeah, I liked this one a lot better. First of all, I like this song. This has always been a song that I've liked. I did find the performance a bit better. I found that they sort of kept it a bit simple. You know, they did some fun little camera things and stuff. But for the most part, it was just James, his guitar and the song. And I felt like that was all they needed. You know, just it was simple. It was nice. Like you said, it was a nice little lullaby. And not surprising to our thousands of listeners. I am not OK with more than two uh, musical performances on the show. <laughs> Sending out your music guy, girl band three times in one episode uh, I don't dig it. Uh, I think it drags down the show. I think it wrecks the pacing. I, I thought it did so here. It's too much music. I like when they just stick to two songs. I don't think there needs to be more. And like, is this why we had such a short monologue? So we could listen to Sweet Baby James get out of here. Well, they could have lost one of the other songs. This was the better of the three songs. They easily could have lost the clapping or the first song. Especially James Taylor. Like him or not, he he's not going to put you in the mood for uh, to laugh. You know, No, he's not like a, an SNL type artist. That's kind of the funny thing I find about a lot of these older episodes, because you've got a lot of these folky musicians and musicians who, you know, are kind of more like smoke a dube, sit on the floor and listen to, you know what I mean? Like, they're not really like SNL, get people energized, get, pe you know, and, and really entertain the crowd kind of performers. And I'm actually shocked that James Taylor is 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 enjoyed by potheads. Pot already mellows you out, and then James Taylor to mellow you out, you'd be dead. <laughs> you would think a cokehead would want James Taylor to sort of keep them level. So our next bit features another Lily mainstay character, Judith Beasley. And she's joined by Dan Aykroyd, who plays a TV pitch man. And this starts as a typical ad where they randomly get a housewife to try new products. But it quickly becomes apparent that Dan Aykroyd is basically pranking her to see how far she will uh, go. So Beasley does some dishes, and then she pours jam on her husband's suit jacket. Um, and then she uh, waxes a gymnasium floor. 
She does a scene from Gone with the Wind in a parking lot, and she goes grocery shopping in a hamster head. Incidentally, that hamster head was worn by Jane Curtin during a fashion show in episode three, I think. Um, and then she follows a strange man into the hotel room, ordered to strip off and do the antler dance. Aykroyd, she said she did everything she was asked and had fun. So if anyone from SNL tells you to do something, you should. I loved this. Um, I liked the Judith Beasley character. Dan Aykroyd's facial expressions were hilarious. As you come to realize that this poor woman was just being pranked by Dan Aykroyd. It was, it was really, really funny. I liked this a lot. Yeah, speaking of smoking doobies. Some, I kind of felt like I just had when I watched this. But at the same time, I did enjoy it. I'd say this was probably my favorite sketch of the night. All the foolishness that she was doing and Aykroyd. This was a win for me. Dan's close-up smile into the camera was probably the laugh of the night for me personally when they zoomed right in and he just gave that big grin. Hilarious. Uh, she was great. Uh, Dan Aykroyd really made this for me. I thought he was wonderful. That look, yeah, that was my favorite part too, Matt, when he did that close-up where he puts on that evil smile. Great stuff. We then have a, a Chiron, and it says the woman is mentally undressing a cameraman, and this woman loved it. We then go to women in literature, and it focuses on little-known women and their impact in literature. Elna Sullivan, played by Lorraine Newman, is writing in her diary. She writes in her journal about like her time at the Eiffel Tower and all these interactions she had with famous people like Hemingway, Proust, Picasso. But her diary entries are very, very basic, like went to the movies, had lots of fun, really, really fun. I was glad I went. I was really glad I went. She never mentions anything about Hemingway. These are short entries about her perspective on what she did. As soon as I realized what was going on, I was in stitches. Lorraine was fantastic. Awesome voice for this. Um, I absolutely love this. Yeah, I'm with you on that one, Keith. As soon as I, as soon as she started, you know, they had all this buildup of these great female literary giants who were didn't get much recognition and then Lorraine comes out and it's basically just this really dull diary yeah I was laughing the whole time and I'm yet to really see Lorraine do something that I don't really like she makes me laugh a lot it took me a second to catch on to what they were doing kind of to your point Keith when when I did I really liked it but uh I thought it, it was it was pretty subtle at first it needed to simmer with me before it before it hit one thing that really made it for me, too, that I didn't mention was the self-satisfied smile she gave. Yeah, that was my day. <laughs> yeah, I liked this one. She did She did a good job in this one. Mm -hmm. We then go to a Gary Weiss film, and it's another bit with uh, semi-famous actor, writer, poet Taylor Mead. And we've seen Mead in two Weiss films before, usually with his cat. This one, he's talking about his television watching habits. He says he watches it for six to ten hours a day. Just really funny stuff. He's going to make a citizen's arrest of Paul Lind for the filth he says on Hollywood Squares. His TV goes on the fritz as he's trying to watch Miss America being crowned. So he puts on a wig and sings. I think this is the last time we see Taylor Mead. But I also think Saturday Night Live left money on the table not using him a bit more. This was definitely the weakest of his appearances. But my God, it was enjoyable. Yeah, I was kind of sitting there going, what am I watching? But he made me laugh. He was sort of endearing and he was goofy. And I don't really know what this whole bit of SNL was all about, what they were no. going for. But he he made it for me. Like he amused me enough that I was enjoying it. 
Weiss's uh, slice of life, New York 70s little short films, uh, I generally like them. There's a couple that uh, I just think are no. Uh, but one of my favorite skits of season one is uh, Buck Henry in the toilet seat shop. This one, obviously a very magnetic character. I, I felt a little taken out of uh, the the context of the sketch, perhaps for, for my own personal reasons. It, it gave me a little too much self-reflection. Like, oh, is this is pretty much, you know, I'm a guy alone that lives with my cat and spends too much time on the internet. And this this could be my future. It's funny you should mention that, how, how much this man would love the internet. I dare say it may, with somebody like that, it may corrupt them and ruin their, their otherwise <laughs> jovial innocence. Uh, he um, hung out with Andy Warhol and, and cronies. Oh, never um, mind. He's yeah. quite corrupted. His, his best <laughs> friends are the people they talk about in uh, Lou Reed's <laughs> Wild Side. <laughs> we now go to a Chiron. Uh, they show a 1970s Johnny Depp-looking fella. And they say he's developing a cold sore. This guy looks absolutely terrified to be on the screen. He was trying to pretend it wasn't happening. These just make me uncomfortable. I'm not really a fan of these. Like every now and then they're kind of amusing, but like these ones just, yeah. This one in particular just made me cringe a little. There are a few that are funny, but I mean, like Matt and I were talking early on. And I think in a lot of ways, this is to get a, a reaction to the live crowd more than the home audience. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, we then go to the final major segment. It's called The Antler Dance. And this is a song written by Michael O'Donohue. It's introduced by Lily Tomlin and sung by Tomlin and Paul Schaefer. It's kind of a raunchy verses with a typical here's how you do a certain dance thing. Um, and the cast, James Taylor, the writers, everyone comes out to dance, including Chevy. And I'll, I'll, I'll indicate why that's odd soon. Uh, Lily was terrible. Uh, I've never seen her sing this poorly, but Paul Schaefer was great and really saved the song. Antler Dance, I don't know exactly what O'Donohue was going for here, but something tells me there was something nefarious or he just wanted to cash in on a song. But yeah, what did you think of this? I kind of liked it and kind of didn't. It was weird. I felt the exact same. I, like you, was kind of surprised by Lily. Thank goodness for Paul. Just kind of a fun way to end the episode. And of course, it tied in the last sketch. Yeah, I was kind of going like, where did this song come from? I've never even heard of this song. But at the same time, like I did find it sort of a fun way to wrap it up. And everybody was there and involved. And it was just, you know, cute ending, I guess. I thought it was really shitty. I thought it was a big waste of time, and I thought there was entirely too much music on this episode, and I know this isn't supposed to be a quote-unquote musical bit, but I mean, you got Paul Schaefer out there singing, it's musical enough, and uh, but I get it, yeah, it's supposed to be a little funny too. It's not funny though, uh, the song's not funny, the dance isn't funny, uh, nothing about this uh, was enjoyable. I really thought they wasted a lot of time this episode. Michael O'Donoghue was one of the darkest writers the show has ever had. This is just not very dark on the surface. I don't know if you remember, but Claude Langer Invitational, where she was shooting the skiers, Jane's name was Jessica Antler Dance. So there's something else afoot here. Maybe it's a filthy reference to something. I, I, this is not just him writing a happy song. Does he have a book? Uh, there's a book about him. Yeah, I read it 20 some years ago when it first came out. It's called Mr. Mike, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I'd love to get it again. I think it's still at mom's house. Is he still with us? No, he's not. He's been dead since 94. Darn. After the goodbyes, we it takes a quick commercial break. We come back, and basically the whole studio audience, everyone who's involved with the show, a couple of Muppets are dancing, and uh, the Muppets antler dance off our screens forever. So I mentioned Chevy dancing. During the 
debate when Chevy knocks over the podium and falls. He allegedly tore his groin, and he tore it so bad that he's not going to be around uh, for a couple of episodes because he was hospitalized. There's a lot of quote-unquote conspiracy theories and uh, alternate history theories on this one, and one of the big clues that Chevy wasn't actually injured was his dancing at the end of this episode. It was a slow-motion fall. It wasn't even like a dramatic fall. Mm -hmm. Well, a fair bit of this will come up next episode because we don't have Chevy live uh, on episode two. But for someone who has done such crazy pratfalls, he's not obviously injured by this one. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a little little suspect. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, injuries like tears and stuff can be much worse later. But uh, yeah, we'll go into this at a later time. But just to... uh, just to note that the Chevy is dancing at the end. Incidentally, Matt, uh, Michael O'Donohue called the Muppets little hairy face cloths. <laughs> I'm so back and forth with this guy. Sometimes I hate him. Sometimes I really like him. Lily Tomlin will be back again to Saturday Night Live. Shortly after this, though, she opens a one-woman show on Broadway called, I think it's called Appearing Nightly. And then she does a movie called The Late Show with Art Carney and Bill Macy that opened in March of 77. Uh, Lily Tomlin continues to do Lily Tomlin things. And I don't mean that at all in a derogatory way, but I I think you know what I mean when I say Lily Tomlin continues to do Lily Tomlin things. She does her own shit. James Taylor will also be back. Shortly after this, he left Warner Brothers Music and joined Columbia Records. And shortly after that, WB released James Taylor's Greatest Hits, which became his best-selling album of his career. The Muppets are gone from Saturday Night Live. So Scred, Plubus, and the rest of the Gorch gang basically disappear from Muppet canon, and they don't really appear anywhere else. These Muppets are essentially retired. This was a bad fit. There was bad feelings, bad writers, bad sketches. There wasn't much great about these guys. The Muppet brand was probably never any lower than it was at this point. Um, And fortunately, they go on to do far better and far bigger things afterwards, the Muppets. And Saturday Night Live is far better without them. And our last epilogue, uh, Taylor Mead. Taylor Mead continued to make appearances and projects till he was well into his 80s. Um, And he died in 2013 at the age of 88. So maybe he did get some internet time in there. Um, I get the vibe that Mr. Mead was one of those really neat counterculture folks that could only have existed in New York in the 1970s. So rating the host. Best bit for me was the quick bit with Ernestine. And that was too short. I liked the opening, but was flat about a lot of her stuff. Judith Beasley was really fun with Aykroyd. Uh, Tess and the Salesman was terrible. It was odd to me that even though a lot of this stuff didn't work, I could not say she was a bad host. That's really strange. I, I, I'm just starting to wonder, and this is based on her, her two appearances, if her style of comedy just doesn't jive with SNL's style of comedy, even though they're very similar in a lot of ways. And it's not a talent thing. It's just, is the chemistry off? Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that, Keith. I enjoyed her. You know, I I liked all of her characters. I always find... Lily Tomlin does character acting and that kind of thing really well. I didn't like the opening. I didn't like those gags, you know, like even when she was introducing James Taylor, like, I don't know, that sort of stuff just kind of fell flat for me. But again, overall as a host, I enjoyed her. I can't say that I didn't. I also thought she was pretty good. Uh, You know, not everything worked, but I I really don't put all of that blame on the host. It's not the show's, the host's fault, 
that the show can be a little clunky. And I don't generally blame the host for that. At least I don't think we should. And I, I thought she showed a lot of talent, a lot of range in this episode. Thumbs up for me, for Lily. So for the music, James Taylor. I'm not. I'm just not a big James Taylor fan. Um, if I was, I might be happier with this. Baby James was good. The first one I didn't like too much, uh, Shower the People. Roadrunner was uh, was okay, but it did give me that clapping. So I guess thumbs down on James Taylor. And I'm, I do like James Taylor. I've never found him a super captivating performer. I find it hard to sit and watch him for long periods of time. But I'm also a little short of attention span in general. So that's probably just me personally. Sweet Baby James is my favorite. The clapping definitely amused me. The rest of it didn't do much for me. Too much. Too much of a, not even a good thing. Just uh, very pedestrian, very bland, you know, miracle whip on white bread sandwich. Not just nothing to it. It's just there. It exists. It doesn't have value. So what is the worst bit of the night for you? You know what? I'm going to say weekend update. I never really enjoy weekend update. Weekend update, also my answer. Uh, big miss. Same old shit. N- nothing of value was offered. I'm going with Tess and the salesman. Um, didn't work for me. Character was kind of fun, but you can't just put somebody in, a, in, in, in funny clothes and hope they're going to get a bunch of laughs. This was just not great for me. So what's the best for you? Sure. My favorite sketch of the night was uh and and it was you know there was some juggling uh a bit because i really like the weiss film uh especially this episode you know i I i try to go with shit that's happening on the show and just for historical purposes as well i gotta go with the debate uh i thought it was pretty ambitious it didn't always work but uh, when it did work, I really thought it worked well. And I thought everybody did really good in it. I think I'm going to have to go with Matt. I think the debate actually probably gave me the most laughs. I wanted to say the debate. Like every fiber of my being wanted to say the debate, but I couldn't do it because two other things had me laughing harder. And those were women in literature and the Judith Beasley sketch. For how compact and short and fun it was, the women in literature one just hit me in the right place. When I watched this both times, I I just laughed at something so simple. So I went with women in literature. Who's your big star of the night? Mine's Lily. I always find she nails it, even when it's kind of a miss. You know, like even that really depressing sketch, she was still enjoyable. So I'm going to say for me, she's sort of shone the brightest in this episode. I'm going to agree with Heather. Uh, my, my star of the night was the host, Lily Tomlin. Uh, I thought she was good in everything she was in, except for that last song, uh, which may or may not. Um, that's not her fault that, uh, that that's a shitty song, and that's how they chose to end the show. I thought she brought her talent, and she was in everything. She was game for everything. I liked this a lot more than her last episode. You know, seeing her classic operator character was good. I uh, was a big fan this episode of her. This was a little trickier for me, but I went with Aykroyd. And, and reason being the uh, the debate, his his run as Jimmy Carter, his bit with uh, Judith Beasley. And he did a really pretentious voice for the women in literature narrator. So I went with Aykroyd. Totally understand why he went with Lily, but uh, that's where I sat. So overall, the cast had a month off, and I sort of thought they'd come back with both both guns blazing, um, and it was kind of flat. I mean, Lily Tomlin was there. James Taylor was there. Uh, there was a lot of news to riff on, and Weekend Update was flat. Taylor Mead was great in the Weiss piece, but it was probably the weakest of all his appearances. For me, it's instead of them coming back all energized, it felt like 
the first Monday after summer vacation for teachers. They just seemed a little tired or something. Lily brought a good energy, um, but the chemistry or something was flat. It just felt to me like we didn't see much of the cast shining on this one. And this episode was a letdown for me. And uh, I gave this one uh, a measly five out of ten. Yeah, I was a little disappointed. The last episode that I did with you guys with the Diane Cannon episode was pretty awful. <laughs> and I was really excited for another like another stab at it and to have a better episode. And I it was better, but like you said, it still wasn't it wasn't their best stuff. It wasn't their top stuff. And I was slightly disappointed. I kinda yeah, you know what? I kinda gotta say like five out of ten as well. I'm not deviating from the team on this. Uh, I also give it a five out of ten. I thought Lily was great, and I thought there were some highlights, but I thought there were some serious lowlights. Too much music on the show, no monologue, shitty ending, Muppets. There's a lot going wrong. Weekend update, no new headshots for the not ready for primetime players. Come on, that takes like less than an afternoon. Uh, So yeah, uh, a soft five. Credit to the host uh, only for me on this. Not to say that the not ready for primetime players uh, didn't do their share, but uh, I, I don't know. They, they clearly just weren't the star of this episode. She was. So our, uh, our average 5, 5, and 5 is 5. And the folks over at Internet Movie Database gave this one a 7.3 out of 10. Seems high for me. And this episode finished uh, 13th best of the second season. And it's uh, 212 as of November of last year on the Internet Movie Database ranking of every episode of Saturday Night Live. I generally find the Internet uh, overhypes this stuff. I'm not saying they don't know what they're doing, but they don't they don't know what they're doing. So it's great to be back for season two. I want to thank Heather for joining us and kicking off the season with this uh, this fun, perhaps underwhelming episode of SNL but hopefully a fun episode to listen to of SN Hell. So thank you, Heather. Thank you, guys. Been a pleasure. And we'll see you again later in season two. I think you're coming back for Sissy Spacek. I will be, yeah. Looking forward to it. And Matt, thanks again. I'll see you next week. We'll be joined again by Chili. It's for episode two, season two, with host Norman Lear and musical guest Boz Skaggs. Uh, oh, can't that? wait. Is speaking to you? Yeah. But until then, we'll be awkwardly clapping here on SN Hell. <laughs> 